Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 103.9 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Thursday evening, where we are set to continue our exploration into the book of Exodus. As I noted last week, we have three weeks left because of uh, my departure, which has us taking these broad brushstrokes, if you will, now into the book of Exodus, which is okay to some degree, because uh, as we move out from Exodus chapter 20, uh, these last 20 chapters do something that really uh, no other book in the Bible does. Uh, Chapters 25 to 31 are also seen in chapters 35 to 40, uh, these divine instructions on how to build a tabernacle. Now, I will get into just not this evening, but also next week, why that happens and and what Moses is doing there. But uh, for now, what we have before us is a discussion on Exodus, primarily Exodus 24, and to some degree Exodus 25 to 31. I am going to offer up a a brief review, and I will be doing this with, uh, once again, the station manager here at KKXX, Andrew Palmquist. So, Andrew, great to have you with me another evening. It's good to be with you again, Joe. I like this topic. Yeah, (laughs) I know you do, Andrew, and now, one of the reasons why I brought you on is because we have these great discussions on the book of Exodus pretty much every time I come out of the studio, mm. and gosh, if it were up to me, I would just hit the record button out there to what oh. we talk about, because I think it would make for some great radio. Anyhow, Andrew, I do know that you have just not some some great questions, but also observations into um, the book of Exodus. There is so much there. I think I noted in the opening week of my study that alongside of the book of Genesis and the book of Revelation, the book of Exodus is high drama, mm. <laughs> high drama, and, and just not because of the miracles we are all familiar with, but because of the heart of man. You know, what is going on with Moses? What, what is the story of Exodus really about? This is the stuff of, of high drama. So by way of quick review, in chapters 20 to 23, what we have in the Sinai Covenant is first the Decalogue, that is the Ten Commandments, of course, and the Covenant Code. So the Ten Commandments establish that universal law that is binding to all people for all times. Uh, the Ten Commandments, of course, reinforce the natural law that is engraved upon our hearts. Last week, Andrew, I was talking about these two precepts of charity, loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then Of course, loving God as your neighbor, these two precepts of charity that Jesus Christ talks about, you see these in the Ten Commandments. Um, Now, the covenant code, on the other hand, is a body of not universal law, but case law, which makes, in particular, chapters 21 to 23 so intriguing. Um, And in these case laws, which were established to regulate the internal affairs of the Jewish people, address really specific circumstances with, we could say, prescribed uh, penalties, Mm -hmm. Uh, the law that governed the Israelite people in in their future life in the land of Canaan. Um, We have a lot of case law today, Mm -hmm. and so this shouldn't be so foreign to us. And and even sometimes people look at these laws in in the book of Exodus, and they say, gosh, that is so strange. They're so concerned about these finite details. Well, look at some of our case law. 
Exactly. Some of our case law is very strange looking from the outsider. Anyhow. Yeah. One that would be familiar to the listeners is the eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Yeah. That, that's where that law comes from. Yep. So in chapter 24, uh, the Israelite assembly accepts the terms of their covenant with God in a sacrificial ceremony. And I do want to hit the pause button here, Andrew, and talk a little bit about uh, what goes on, I think, what, verses 4 to 8. So if you can... Read for us Exodus chapter 24, verses 48. That would be Sure, and, be and something that's been intriguing to me is that God uh, gives the covenant law, which is we refer to as the old covenant, and then the covenant of grace, which is the new covenant, covenant that comes through Christ. Mm-hmm. So this, in my mind, is kind of setting up that covenant law that was given to us through Moses. It says, Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up twelve stone pillars representing the twelve tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in the bulls, and the other half he splashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it. So I guess that would be previous to the scripture we have today. It would be the Torah? Yep, the Torah, Mm mm-hmm. So he, he reads the Torah to the people, and they responded, We will do everything that the Lord has said we will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you, in accordance with all these words. Amen. Yeah. So you <laughs> see almost a marriage happening. Oh, yes. And, and th- this is so rich. You know, let me first say this, and, and this should generate, I, I think, uh, the discussion we desire, Andrew. In this ritual ceremony, what we have is the blood signifying Israelites' uh, kinship with Yahweh, if you will. Mm. One can also say it signifies their consecration to God. And understand, I'm very intentional in using the word consecration, the word that you see all throughout the Old Testament, consecration. It's derived from the Latin consecrare, which essentially means to make holy, to speak to your devoted service to God. Now, why did you need a sacrifice? Well, what does sacrifice mean? Secum fitse in the Latin there, to make holy, right? So this external sacrifice, as it's prescribed in the Old Testament, of course, is what makes holy their ritual ceremony. Um, Now, I, I suppose the question, Andrew, that begs to be asked here is why. Mm-hmm. What is going on? Well, this uh, ritual ceremony was also an act of renunciation of Egyptian idol worship, right? We have to remember that they just spent 400 years worshiping these pagan idols. So God was asking the Egyptians to slaughter the very things that they worshiped in Egypt. Mm, I see. You know, one might draw it out by way of analogy, uh, Andrew. Say I am a drunkard. <laughs> And my wife kicks me out. I go to AA. I get it all figured out. And I come back to my wife eight, ten months later, maybe a year later. And I knock on the door. She opens the door. And I ask to to be a part of the family again. And she probably slams the door in my face, maybe never wanting to see me again. And I come back five minutes later, and I beg her to, to be a part of the family again. And she says, okay, but you need to show me something. I need to see some act that shows me you are serious about 
being the father of this family Mm. and not succumbing to your addiction. And so her request is to maybe take that bottle of, of liquor, maybe it's vodka, and to slam it on the ground twice a day, not once a day, but twice a day, right? <laughs> yeah. That would be an external sign that shows her, I am no longer addicted to that vodka, yeah. right? In a similar way, no analogy is perfect, right? But in a similar way, God is saying to the Israelite people, I want you to show me that you have overcome this pagan worship, this idol worship, those animals that you once worshipped, I am now asking you to slaughter. Yeah. Right? So there is this act of renunciation going on. So that's important, not only to these verses, but I would also say to the larger context of the Old Testament. Now, you mentioned the New Testament, the New Covenant, and no doubt Mark 14 uh, verses 22, 23, 24, how can we not think about these verses when Jesus is in the upper room and he says, and as they were eating, this is of course the institution of the Eucharist, and as they were eating, he took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. So there's these four principal actions he Mm -hmm. took, uh, blessed, broke, and gave, and he said, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he had given it to them. And by the way, the Greek for given thanks is eucharisteros, where we get the word eucharist. Uh, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the kainé uh, diatheke in the Greek, new covenant, which is poured out for many. Right? Oh, by the way, where else do we see this? But in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25, The only time that St. Paul, who again was the prized pupil of Saul, prized pupil of Rabbi Gamaliel, who we read about in Acts 5, the only time Paul, the great scholar of the Old Testament, quotes Jesus is here in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 25. Why does Paul do that? Well, because clearly what Jesus did in the upper room was very important. Jesus said, this is the blood of the new covenant which I pour out for you. Yeah. And, and what started in the upper room, of course, was ratified on the cross when the blood pours from his side. The blood of the new covenant pours from his side for the ransom of man. And he just had his moment with the 12 disciples where he, he went to each of them and they, they said they were prepared to drink the cup. Mm-hmm. So there's this moment where the Israelites say, we will obey. Mm. He also, Christ also has that moment in the upper room. Amen. I love that connection there. And incidentally, uh, Andrew, it's worth noting that the word obedience comes from the, the Latin obadire, to listen well, to be in tuned, to be in harmony with, right? So to obey is to be in harmony with. Now, of course, as you speak to the Old Testament then also the twelve. Well, we know at least 11 of the 12, right? We're in harmony with, we're in tune with God's plan to the degree that, that at that time they were willing to drink of the cup. Now, of course, and things they, change, but ultimately it's to say that obedience, as you speak to it, is very important. And it's, it's interesting to me that they had just escaped Egypt by the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, mm-hmm. and then they enter into the law of the covenant with the blood of a bull. Yeah. Is there any significance with a bull, what a bull would represent besides being one of the Egyptian gods? Well, that's the great significance right there. And, and ultimately, 
you know, that this anticipates and, and foreshadows Christ as the Lamb of mm. God. This points to John 6 when Jesus himself says, He who eats of my flesh and drinks of my blood has life eternal. Um, in verse 53, the Greek changes. The Greek word that's employed translates as to chew or to gnaw, as in something like animal stock. So Jesus, as the Lamb of God, in John chapter 6, verses 53 and following, certainly wants us thinking about eating and drinking his blood as one who is the Lamb of God. So all of this is certainly very relevant when you talk about how what is in the Old Testament is charged with New Testament significance, for sure. And I just see the, the blood of the Lamb is, is grace, and then the blood of the bull is the law. They entered through the blood of grace into a temporary covenant of the law. Yeah, I mean, when you talk about the relationship between law and grace, uh, in Acts chapter 15, um, in what we know to be the first council, the Council of Jerusalem in 47 AD, there's a discussion about the old law and new law, and of course this is when Peter stands up, but also significantly James stands up, and in one corner <laughs> you have the Sanhedrin, and in the other corner you have uh, the apostles, Barnabas present as well, and the discussion is what? What signifies the old law? What signifies the new law? Mm-hmm. Do we have to be baptized? James stands up and says, you better believe it. So whereas circumcision was the sign of the old law where you entered in relationship with God, baptism, mm. made possible, of course, by the blood of the Lamb, is now the new sign of entering into relationship with God. That's why when you talk about baptism and the gift of the Holy Spirit, you know, there's where you start talking about sanctifying grace and, and the grace we receive at baptism. So there... I think, is where the discussion of old law and new law goes, Andrew, specifically to what we read in the book of Acts. God goes into great detail about preparations for the Ark of the Covenant and then ultimately to the uh, the wilderness tabernacle. But God is giving preconditions or preparations, not just to his people, but then to us, that we need to prepare our hearts first to receive him. It, it wasn't that he, he could have just haphazardly thrown the Ten Commandments in and, and worried about housing them later. But yeah. before the Ten Commandments even exist, God gives Moses instructions on how to house them, mm-hmm. how, how to properly store them, where to store them, what goes on in the outer courts. And and I think we need, we need to approach the throne of grace in the same way, yeah. you know, as, as a non-believer would prepare their heart to receive Christ. So we have to have an openness, which it is not uh, hard for us to understand as believers, but for a non-believer, you would, you wouldn't really understand that you have to open your heart first. You have to prepare a place in your heart where you're willing to receive Christ so that then you can, you know, it's, it's almost like you have to develop that need. You have to have the, the, the vacant, mm-hmm altar, then you can have something to put inside of it. Yeah, amen. I, and I, I think that's a keen insight. You know, Andrew, the whole of the Christian life is really the emptying out of our heart of all its muck and mire so as to make space for God. Mm, very true. Right? The emptying is the carving out, if you will, uh, space for God to dwell. There's an exchange that has to happen there. And it, yeah. And 
a lot of people that they may go to church, but they're not tr- they haven't truly given themselves to Christ. So that's the very reason is they never made room for Christ in their heart. Yes, and yes. So they, they're holding on to their own bitterness and strife and hate, hatefulness and lust. But that you have to clear room in your heart and give that to Christ in exchange for grace. You know, Saint Elizabeth of the Trinity offers for us, I think, a pretty important phrase. She says, uh, "Become the praise and glory of God." How do you become the praise and glory of God? Well, doing what we are talking about right now, by allowing the divine indwelling, which is to speak to the Trinity, to, to allow God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to consume our hearts, is to then become the praise and glory of God. I don't say it lightly that the whole of the Christian life is really emptying out our heart of, of all that muck and mire that preoccupies us. Mm-hmm. Our Lord says in the Sermon on the Mount, do not worry, do not be anxious. That Greek for worry and anxiety literally translates as preoccupied, uh, preoccupied. Now, Andrew, I did, I did want to at least touch upon chapters 25 to 31 to discuss at least a little bit of this, because in chapters 25 to 31, what you have here are really the divine instructions for the building of a tabernacle with all of these, as you have already hinted at, sacred furnishings, right? As it relates to the tabernacle itself, the sanctuary will serve as the dwelling place of Yahweh on earth, and it really becomes the focal point of Israelite worship during the whole of the Mosaic Age. Um, And what's important to understand here, Andrew, is that Moses' vision is a celestial blueprint, which is to say the tabernacle he is to build will serve as both replica and sign of a divine reality. He is building what he saw in the heavens. So this is a replica and sign of a divine reality. Here I'm thinking of wisdom, chapter 9, verse 8, that speaks to the earthly tabernacle built by Moses as an image of God's sanctuary in heaven. Why do our churches today look the way they look? Because they are an effort to replicate to some degree what Moses built, right? So uh, all very important. Um, With the tabernacle itself, you have this large covered tent that stood within the sanctuary. I did want to make a point as we're talking about the tabernacle and and God's dwelling. Uh, We were speaking to the significance of the New Testament, Andrew. Go to John chapter 1, verse 14. Uh, What does John say there? And the flesh dwelt among us, and the flesh dwelt among us. The Greek there for John 1.14 is tabernaclus, which translates quite literally as God pitched his tent. Now, if I'm a faithful Jew reading this passage, reading this very verse in the first century, what am I going to think about, Andrew? You're going to think about the wilderness tabernacle. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, you're going to go back to Exodus 25 to 31 and 36 to 40, read about all the details, and then ponder the significance of all of that in relationship to now God incarnate and Jesus Christ becoming in himself the new tabernacle, that in himself he's the new temple, the new tabernacle, because in him God has pitched his tent. That's the significance of the incarnation. That's the significance of Jesus saying, eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, and now you have eternal life. Why? Because now I dwell in you. You become a tabernacle. You become a a, a tent, if you will. Um, 
this is all very rich stuff, but John is the eagle. You know, Andrew, in the early church, each gospel had their, speaking of signs and symbols, had their symbols for um, their gospels. John was the eagle. Why? Because he soars. He's the great theologian. And unlike Matthew, Mark, and Luke that are the synoptic gospels, which more or less summarize the, the, the gospel narrative, John takes a different route. No less important, of course, but he, he takes a different route because he is uh, led by the Holy Spirit to show us the deeper meaning of the relationship between the old and new. And he wastes no time. The flesh dwelt among us. It's interesting, Andrew, because in the Gospel of John, what is he talking about? Light, darkness, days. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. What are you thinking about in the opening verses to the Gospel of John but creation? Well, in Christ, there is a new creation. And in Christ, God has pitched his tent. In Christ, God is, dare I say, walking among us in the cool of the day. <laughs> right? um, I think we were talking before, Andrew, if you were to go to, what is it, Genesis chapter 3, verse 7, 8, 9, God is walking in the cool of the garden. The Hebrew there for walking is, is the same that we see in the tabernacle with God's dwelling when, when God pitched his tent mm-hmm. and his presence was among the Israelites. The same Hebrew word is there. And here we have more talk about his dwelling and now his dwelling is his son. And, and this certainly is, is powerful stuff. Yeah. And God's desire is to have a relationship with his people. And so we, we see that in him walking in the garden, and we see that again in the way that the Holy Spirit are, well, I guess that's a question that we can ask, is how, how did God dwell inside of the Holy of Holies, but then also the way that God inhabits the praises of his people now mm. after the resurrection? Yeah. Um, do, do you see a difference there, God walking in the garden and God indwelling the Holy of Holies and now how God indwells his people? Yeah, covenant. well, certainly in the New Covenant, by virtue of the power of the gift of the Holy Spirit, it is entirely new. I mean, here I'm thinking of Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 34, where we have from the prophet Jeremiah him saying, and the only time you hear of the New Covenant in the Old Testament, you know, when he's, when he's prophesying about the coming of the Messiah, he says, in the Old Covenant, the law was etched onto stone. In the New Covenant... right. The law is written on your heart, so by virtue of the gift of the Holy Spirit, now the new law of grace is inscribed upon our heart, this law of a new faith, a new hope, uh, the new means by which to love. All of this is given to us in the power of love itself. Going to your question, Andrew, with respect to the Holy of Holies, when you look at the the tabernacle itself, there's the holy place, right? Mm. And then there's the most holy place. And the most holy place, of course, is the Holy of Holies, which is in the inner sanctuary. You have the veil that, that splits the sanctuary in two. And on the other side of the veil, where the Levitical priest went right, you have the Holy of Holies and what was uh, in the Holy of Holies, but the Ark of the Covenant. And what was in the Ark of the Covenant, I think it's um, oh, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 4, maybe. I'm trying to pull these verses out, I think it's Hebrews 9, 4, where it was what? But Aaron's rod? And the Holy of Holies, and the Ark of the Covenant, the manna, right? And then also the Ten Commandments themselves. So, yeah, God's presence was in the law. God's presence was in the sustenance he had given the Israelite people. God's presence was in the priesthood 
oh, by the way, of the Old Testament? So I think that's a very important question when we reflect in the significance of the, of the wilderness tabernacle. Similarly, when we talked about preparing a place for the, the Ten Commandments in the Ark of the Covenant, there's also a scripture that says that the priests have to prepare themselves and lay themselves bare before the Lord before they enter the Holy of Holies. We see similar approaches in the New Testament and the New Covenant for accepting communion, how we should examine our hearts before we accept mm. communion. Yeah. So I wanted to, to ask as a kind of a final question, mm. how, how do we operate now under the New Covenant as kings and priests, maybe mm. similar to the Levitical priesthood where we have to bear ourselves, open our hearts, make room for God before we enter his presence through communion? Yeah, uh, that's a beautiful question, Andrew, and a very good one. So I think there you're actually talking about what comes right after Paul is talking about um, Jesus in the upper room, I think I quoted 1 Corinthians eleven twenty five. just go a few verses later, and what you have is Paul talking about the importance of examining your conscience, and that, yeah, this is very important and very real. And so that examination of conscience has us looking at the importance of our sin, mm-hmm. right, and that we do cleanse ourselves of that sin. Now, of course, in the Catholic Church there, we, we are talking about the sacrament of confession, but pouring this into your context, the context of your question with respect to you know, our kingly and priestly duty, let's focus in on the priestly aspect of it. Uh, this was always understood in the early church as the sacrificial dimension. So here again, we have the importance of renunciation, to renounce those things we have become attached to, to purify those things we have become attached to. Incidentally, Andrew, the Hebrew word for purity is the same Hebrew word for truth, a myth, a myth. So what does Jesus say? Blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. Mm. Blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God in all his glory. Uh, the Greek there <laughs> for purity, for pure, is kathados. Uh, kathados is a translation of the Hebrew vision of priestly sacrifice. So it all comes full circle. So we have this call to purify, which really, in the end, Andrew, is a call to renounce. So we have this call then to examine self. What have we become attached to? Are we watching a television program too much? Are we eating too much of this or that? Whatever you are attached to, God is calling you to renounce that so as to be attached to Him, right? Detached from one thing allows us to be attached to God. And uh, this is quintessential to the spiritual life because, well— in doing that, we are then better um, disposed to receive our Lord. And again, it goes back to making room for God to abide. He who abides in me, I abide in him, he says. Um, any other thoughts? I, I think that's the, that's the point right there. It's yeah. just that we, we examine ourselves, examine our hearts, take up our cross daily, and daily crucify the flesh. Amen. Paul doesn't preach Jesus Christ alone, but Jesus Christ crucified. Mm -hmm. This is the stumbling block, and this is what we do. Um, We preach Christ crucified, especially during this this Lenten season. All right, very good, Andrew. As always, it's great to have you a part of the radio program. Uh, It's great to be not just in a monologue, but dialogue about the things of the faith. So, as always, I appreciate that. Let us go ahead and close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end, amen. And God bless you.